0: Cross a pavement, cutting to your private interview Talk to me now, step into my room, we'll have a word or two If I ever had a million dollars, if I didn't give it all to you Would you lose interest, show me indifference, foot in another shoe?
1: Hey folks, uh, welcome back to Reggie's Comic Stories. I believe this is episode number five, even though I said on the last episode it was number five. Uh, I hope I'm right. That would be cool. Uh, Whatever it is, it's the next episode of Reggie's Comic Stories. You can find me here every other Wednesday on uh, chrisandreggie.podbean.com or point your browsers over to weirdcomicshistory.blogspot.com and of course, you pick us up from Stitcher, iTunes, Google Play, iHeartRadio, Spotify, uh, whatever else the other. If there are more, are there more? I don't know. If there are more, then we, then they they also aggregate uh, all of our podcasts. And every other Wednesday that I'm not doing a show, of course, is Chris does his solo program. Uh, Chris is on Infinite Earths, which is great. It's if you wanted to know about Chris's personal. Uh, History in comics Much more than I've been revealing uh, I think myself uh, At least in a much more linear way He's got his presented uh, You really gotta check that out On uh, alternate Wednesdays But for today's show I wanted to read some excerpts From a uh, book that came out in 2005 By Dark Horse Books It's called Eisner slash Miller Uh, This is an interview The entire book is just a long interview uh, Conducted by Charles Brownstein Really Really Though between Eisner and Miller, frankly, for a lot of the book, it's them almost interviewing each other. Uh, to his credit, uh, Mr. Brownstein doesn't uh, interject himself too obviously. He lets these two uh, greats talk talk amongst themselves. And I get, you know, it's up to you to decide whether they are great. But there's definitely a, a big mutual admiration uh, going on there. And uh, Eisner is very familiar with Miller's work, uh, as Miller is. Uh, Familiar with Eisner's, which you would expect him to be, quite frankly. Um, it's really interesting, though. For one thing, there is a little bit uh, too much shop talk at one point. Um, and that may You know, too much, depending on what you want to read. But there is a lot of stuff about, like, types of brushes and ink washes and stuff. And it's interesting. A lot of stuff about, actually, the uh, production process for making comics through the years and how that's affected the kind of artwork that can be in comics. I really recommend this book. Uh, to anybody that's interested in comics history, comics production, aspects of comics that, uh, you know, aren't uh, usually uh, evident in most anecdotes. But there's plenty of anecdotes, and there's lots of commentary on comics and the careers that these two gentlemen had uh, throughout, the you know, the history of comics. So, um, just for a little maybe a better description that I gave uh, from the school library journal, Uh, In 2002, cartoonist Frank Miller visited with Will Eisner for a free ranging discussion across several days. Brownstein provided shape to their encounters, giving the two artists a medium in which they could use words to explore the history of American graphic novel expression, the business concerns of comics publishing, the relationship between art forms such as comics and film, and the meanings of success to each individual. Both men proved themselves thoughtful and agile speakers engaging one another's ideas and building together a kind of oral history of the art form. Brownstein worked invisibly but successfully so that each man stepped out from time to time, from the overarching wholeness of the discussions, to be seen as unique. The volume is gracefully and carefully illustrated with work, not only by Miller and Eisner, but also by those whom they called into the conversation, Johnny Craig, Neil Adams, and even Lynn Johnston. Photos show the distinctive ages of the two subjects and confirm the c- comfortable nature of this recorded interaction. This is a fine example of, su- of critical literary biography with no whiff of academic revisioning attached. As such, students will find it valuable for both curriculum support and casual reading. Uh, and I agree with that. the uh, Francisca Goldsmith of the Berkeley Public Library in California said that. Uh, I agree also. It, it is... It's both very academic, but it is also highly readable. And uh, I would say, you know, this is not this is not a good first book to read for the history of comics. But if you are somewhat familiar, uh, especially with the the careers of these two gentlemen, and if you want to get familiar before listening to this episode, uh, our Weird Comics History episode 26 is a pretty full biography of Will Eisner and, and everything he accomplished. Uh, that's in the archives. And also... Uh, Chris and Reggie's Cosmic Treadmill episode 37, that episode is Robocop versus Terminator number 1, which came out in 1992. That one has a a pretty detailed uh, biography of Frank Miller. Pardon me. Um, We probably could do a little bit more detail, uh, go into maybe more of his, I don't know, more newsworthy things, whatever, but as far as what he's accomplished in his bibliography, it's, it's pretty complete. Uh, also got Walt Simonson. Also have the Terminator and a really really stupid uh concept about time travel. But we're not here to talk about that today. We are here to read and I've I've selected three chapters. They're pretty they're not too long each chapter. They kind of uh run different lengths depending. But uh this is uh just three chapters, not too far from the beginning, because I didn't wanna as you go as we go deeper in uh there's a lot of stuff that refers to stuff that was said earlier in the in the conversation or conversations. Uh so you know I wanted to stick in kind of one general area so it wasn't too confusing. And uh I may hop out to clarify things if I if it's necessary. <clears throat> Pardon me very much. Um I'll, also I'm going to use two voices. Now, I am not going to attempt to mimic Will Eisner's voice or Frank Miller's voice, but just by way of differentiating them. I'm going to use Will Eisner's voice is going to be my voice, and Frank Miller's going to talk like this. All right? But but that's not the way Frank Miller sounds, and in fact, Will Eisner never sounded like me either. That's just to differentiate. So when you hear this, it's Will. When you hear this, it's Frank. All right? So that's how we're going to do it. Uh, And we're going to start this chapter. is called Inside the Master's Studio. It starts, the Eisner studio is behind an unassuming door among rows of lawyers, doctors, and dentists' office. The studio is modest. Behind a glass door, there is a small reception area with wills, posters, lining the walls. A short hallway leads to Eisner's work area. On the left side is his business desk, which is surrounded by bookshelves and awards. To the right is his drawing area, where a drawing board, stacks of current pages, and a light table reside. Miller and Eisner take seats behind the dro- beside the drawing board.
2: How long has this lightbox been around?
1: Since 1950, I'd guess. The carpenter came in and built it for us. It's
2: beautiful. Don't let Charles Brownstein see it. He'll try to steal it and auction it off for the comic book legal defense fund. ha 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 ha. ha.
1: I've got a lot of old stuff around here that I still use.
2: I was lucky. I found the perfect drawing board. It must have been around 1985. It's an oak drawing board that has this built-in light table. Ooh. And since I do my roughs same size and lightbox them to pencil, it's a perfect drawing board. It's so well made, even though the movers tried to destroy it, they couldn't. I was able to get it fixed. What kind of ink do you use? Higgins. Have you tried that new kind that Dr. Martin's puts out? The high carb? No, I use black magic. Black magic, yeah, that's dark.
1: Would you like to see some of the pages from the new book, Fagin the Jew?
2: Sure. Hmm. A lot of wash in here. Yeah. I've never really messed with wash. I
1: love it. The wash I'm using here is just dirty water. It's good to work with. It also gives me a chance to deal with backgrounds a little more softly. Normally, I ink every
2: background in. This is beautiful. I'm loving the wash work here. The depth of field you're getting. You're not drawing half the stuff back there, but I I think
1: it's there. That's exactly right. That's what I want. What I'm proud of is the fact that it's just dirty water. I wash my brush after two uh, or three line strokes. Really? I keep wetting my brush and wiping on a piece of paper. It keeps the carbon down.
2: I may start doing that because that's a problem I've got. I use so much black that you can imagine how often carbon buildup happens. What's interesting is that here you're blurring your backgrounds, but have included a few keys to indicate the environment to the scene. I was trained to draw entire rooms. That, that was the mark of a professional comics artist that you would draw an entire office as your establishing shot, and then come in for your close-ups. Over time, drawing entire rooms tended to be a rather boring thing to do. And it's pretty boring on the eye, unless you do it like Frank Lloyd Wright. I tend to love scenes more for the details than for the overall architecture of the situation. To me, the most memorable thing in your drawing area is the lamp on your board. That tells me more about the room than its dimensions. Often, it's much better to find an object than to build a scene around it. You can establish an entire
1: scene by faking a Tiffany lamp on a table with a doily. And if you have nothing else in there, I'll tell you what kind of room it is, what era, what's happening in there. You know that in a scene like like that, it will have to be a lady, not a slob in a backwards baseball cap. Not unless he's breaking in. What I'm talking about stems from a series of conclusions, a stagecraft that comes from the Depression era. During the Depression era, the WPA, that was the Federal Work Projects Administration that was set up during uh, the President uh, Roosevelt's New Deal in order to get people working. Uh, theaters that I used to go didn't, to go to didn't have enough money to do full sets. So what they do to est- is establish a scene, take a lamppost, stick it in the center of the stage, and it became a street scene. Maybe a few steps to show the front of some building. From that, I learned that it's possible with good lighting and with key details to establish a scene. Not only that, but I also learned that memory is impressionistic. And so I began to make my work move more impressionistic. In the building, structures drawn by by a standard comic book clone would have had every damn window with all the panes carefully structured. I didn't have to do that for my kind of reader. As a matter of fact, the best compliment I had... An affirmation of what I'm talking about came to me when I was in Holland. Some guy came over to me and said, Mr. Eisner, I just got back from New York, and you know, it looks just like your books. I took that as a great, great compliment, because it was exactly what I was doing. I was doing the story impressionistically. No one knows how many steps there really are, are in a stoop outside of a house. I know there are 13, but most people don't, and it's not important. What's important to know is that they are there, and they have a railing on the side, and that there's feeling. All you need is a little bit of it. It has to do with what I call impressionism. That's the one connecting similarity between what you and I do. We're both working
2: impressionistically. Especially in Sin City. For instance, I started Sin City a couple of years after moving to Los Angeles, and I was swept up with the romance of the city. I'd been out east all my life, and then I started Sin City, and I'm never gonna name where it is because it's nowhere. The next time I do it, it'll probably be New York. Anyway, what is L.A.? Who cares about the Hollywood sign? L.A. is great old cars, gorgeous women, palm trees, and terracotta tiling, and that's about all there is. So I developed ways of inking terracotta tiles, silhouettes of palm trees blowing in the wind, and flying cars and good-looking women
1: what you were doing is what joseph Mallard william turner the english impressionistic painter did he drew a harbor that looked exactly like a ship-filled harbor but when you got real close to it it was nothing but a lot of little strokes and when you stepped away from it it was all there what was happening was that you were putting a lot in there and that he was inviting you to pu- uh, that he was inviting you to put in but you were putting it in You were participating, and this is what led me into the business of eliminating backgrounds. I spent a lot of time teaching the use of panels and creating a whole theology on the function of panels, which I still abide by, but it doesn't mean that they need to be used exclusively or always. Same with balloons. I no longer use expressionist balloons. I just use simple ovals to keep the text in because my characters no longer need the support of the erratic balloon. But the point is that they no longer need too much background beyond the fact that it suggests what's going on. The thing I was showing you there, that background was all that there was needed for 13 pages. One little panel that shows the scene, and the reader remembers the rest of it.
2: One of the things that makes historical work so difficult is that all of a sudden you need a detail. What do they use for a soup ladle in 480 BC? Those details are absolutely critical. Because if you get them wrong, not only will people notice, but the work will not be as good. But you can stylize like crazy. If your story is wedded to that, but if your story is not
1: wedded to that, your Sin City stories are not wedded to that infinite detail. They're essentially impressionistic work. They're as impressionistic as impressionistic paintings. Pure Impressionism, in my opinion, is that card hurtling down the road and you don't see a background, but you know what's going on, and you supply all the rest of it. That's the essence of
2: Impressionistic art, and I believe it's very important. I think one of the things I find so strange about a lot of the people reading comic books is that they always counted panels. They always want to make sure they got enough panels in the comic. Now they're counting lines. So if it only has three lines, the guy didn't work hard enough. Really? They call it detail, but it's not detail. It's density of line. There's some strange aesthetic that's developed with these very, very liney comic books. It goes against the traditions of the medium.
1: The ones that I see have finely detailed backgrounds, accurately drawn windows and doorknobs, buttons and nails, are all very accurate. And I think that's wonderful, but it seems to me that it impedes the speed of the story. It slows up the flow.
2: I find, for instance, that technically... Katsuhiro Otomo's Akira is an astonishing piece of work. But the sheer scale of the line work, the architectural detail... After a while, it's like, am I reading a story or getting going to class? There's just so much... And that could be some kind of statement, like in Jeff Darrow's stuff. He's an absurdist. He makes the real world so bizarre, where... Where your surroundings look strange to you, but when it starts being all this information, it tends to overwhelm and get in the way of the narrative. Well, I think this brings
1: us to the content of the story, the nature of the story. Japanese manga use very little background in order to enhance the speed at which the story is moving. They want thin stories that move at an incredibly fast speed.
2: They really do strive for movies on paper. It resembles film almost to the point of being flipbooks sometimes. And what they do is they eschew background in many cases.
1: The rate of speed of a story is an important thing, but it depends on the story you want to tell. To show an entire building in infinite detail is not storytelling, as far as I'm concerned. So, that was pretty interesting, at least to me. I do like when they start talking about ink and things like that. That just seems like pretty normal... Uh, cartoonist patter Uh, one thing they touch on in that chapter though that they actually go into uh, later in the book they go back to it several times and I I don't really go back to it so you'll have to buy the book or get the book take the book out from the library if you want to uh, find out what they say what they talk about you know will uh, Eisner talks about his history with theater and uh, Miller sort of touches on movies but of course If you listen to that episode of uh, Cosmic Treadmill, you'll know that he wrote a bunch of scripts. And obviously he's more a product of the movie era, uh, I would say. More a product of the movies than theater, most likely. So uh, the point being that that's sort of a difference in the way they even they approach comics. And they go into that more, and it really gives food for thought. uh, Even how comics are made today. um, What they call widescreen comics, you know, things like that. So uh, that's just... Uh, something to think about. i I really am just touching on these things. This. This is uh, more or less me trying to get people who are on the fence about this book to go out and check it out because it really is interesting. Um. Next chapter I'm going to read. It's called "Stages in Creativity." Uh, it begins with Miller.
2: How do you approach making a book, Will? What are your
1: stages? In this particular book, The Name of the Game, I started off with the characters. I made pencil roughs to the characters, and he shows these roughs to Miller.
2: These are Xeroxes.
1: These are pencil roughs. No, I mean the
2: other side is Xeroxes.
1: Yeah, the other side. Uh, I'm a depression boy. I don't throw stuff away. I save old paper. After the characters, I made a timeline, because one of the problems with the story was that I was going over something like 40, 50 years, so I made a timeline for all the people. Then I created the main characters I was going to deal with. The story breakdown I have here somewhere uh, just envision a laundry list of incidents. I knew how it was going to end. I always start from that.
2: The way I've taken to doing stories lately, especially since DK2,
1: and that's Dark Knight uh, Returned, or... Dark Knight Returns 2, what do they call that one? Dark Knight, whatever, this is the one that came out in the uh, early 2000s, uh, late 90s, which I guess was still, uh, he was still in production at this time.
2: The follow-up to what we call Dark Knight Returns, uh, that's what he's talking about. So anyway, especially since DK2, with its captive audience, it's is when looking at broad strokes, I just started using post-it notes for scenes put them all on the wall and kept rearranging them until the structure worked. I've still got them up there because every once in a while, when I was feeling lost in the middle of the story, I would just walk up to that wall and there's the whole picture. That's essentially what
1: I do here, except with a basic story like this, I start off with where I want each character to be at a given time. I'll make a list and I'll say the characters doing this here and each of those is a page. I use pages almost like panels. I think of them as panels... And in each panel, something complete happens. Within that panel, I make other panels. In this particular case, I've been staying to three tiers. I'll make changes in the dummy as I go, too. For example, here, I change the whole balloon. My pencil ruffs, as you can see, are chopped off. I'm doing what you do. You do it on the wall, I'm doing it here.
2: Well, no. Plotting is what I put on the wall.
1: The plotting depends on the kind of story. A lot depends on the complexity of the story you're doing. If you're doing an adventure story where there's a lot of action going on, then it would be essential to do it that way.
2: Well, if the cast is large in any story...
1: The name of the game is a huge cast, and they were growing up old as the story went on. That's why I needed the timeline. As far as the compositions here are concerned, again, this is all chopped up. Essentially, I'm doing these dummies as a selling piece, too. They, they tell the publisher what he's going to get.
2: So you believe in letting the publisher know what you're doing? Sure. You can't trust publishers, Will. Come on! (laughs) No, I'm kidding. It isn't a question of trust. No, as long as I don't have to give them control. Well,
1: there's a point about trust. I don't trust telling a guy something that I'm going to do because I don't trust him to imagine it exactly the way I would imagine it. If I say I'm going to have a guy jumping off a bridge and dying while he's in the water... The person I'm talking to has a vision of which side of the bridge the guy's going to jump off and how he's going to jump. I have a different vision. Over the years, I've always believed you don't sell by conversation, you sell by showing. You say to an editor, this is what you're going to get. You want to buy it or don't you want to buy it? I no longer count on an editor understanding what it is I'm going to say. I don't believe in that. When you say I don't trust an editor,
2: is that what you mean? No, as a matter of fact, by the time I deliver much of anything, the editor's already so familiar with my story that they're probably sick of hearing about it. I talk incessantly, and when it comes to stuff where I don't own the properties, I deliver a very comprehensive scenario. But as far as the layouts and all that, for me, so much of that's done along the way that I don't think I could deliver a facsimile of the entire thing at the start.
1: Remember, generally I'm used to dealing with five or six different publishers around the world in different languages. I give this dummy copy to my agent in Europe, and he sends it around to each of of the clients and says, this is what Will's going to do. As far as they're concerned, this is already the new book. One of them wanted to buy it as is. When he came back and said that to me, I thought maybe I should add some wash to it and reset the balloons. I don't think pencil roughs have the capacity of transmitting the kind of feeling in final art.
2: No, it would just be more of a document than the final product.
1: They tried to reproduce pencil art one time. You remember that? Or or maybe it was before you came in. Somebody got the idea that, what the hell do we need inkers for? These guys can pencil so tight that we can reproduce them. I think it was Stan Lee who tried that.
2: I think they've tried that six or seven times and it never worked.
1: It never really works. It doesn't make any sense when you come right
2: down to it. I don't really regard the pencil as a drawing instrument. It's very much like a stylus was during the Renaissance. It's a structural tool. Ink is a drawing medium.
1: I agree with you. And the problem is if the pencils are so tight, the inking becomes a mechanical thing. It loses the thing you and I were talking about, which is the joy of drawing.
2: To me, it's absurd to hear about tight pencils, because you're adding a ridiculous step that means nothing.
1: I don't do tight pencils. I compose or lay out a story. It's what I start with, so in the case of the name of the game here, I'll start with this page. I position the balloons first. I ink the lettering and then the balloon around it. Within the space left by the balloons, I'll begin drawing. Balloons are subject to the composition. I spend a lot of time on the postures and the gestures and the little details. I plan that. The three stages that I use are a rough pencil and then maybe I'll tighten up with a mechanical pencil. Lou Fine used to use a mechanical pencil. I learned how to use that from watching him. I'll lay out the shapes in a certain amount of detail, and then I ink. After I've done the line work, I'll put the wash in. My dirty water wash. I'm so proud of that discovery.
2: I use a quill pen for the detail. I start with blue pencil. The thing I like about that is that it ultimately keeps the whole process cleaner.
1: I originally used it for that reason because remember when you're getting 5 or 6 dollars a page and if I'm only making a dollar 75 a page I better cut out something. I finally began using preprinting panels. Now I don't use the whole punch plastic that you rule your lines with for lettering. I use this, just a big piece of cardboard. I lay it on the board, use a triangle and draw the line.
2: No kidding. What I do is take the Ames lettering guide and letter it all in ink and then lightbox the text onto the board. I write right onto the board. Yeah, you've got the lightbox thing. I use a lightbox all the time.
1: It's a very good thing. I don't use it, though. The reason I do the lettering that way is I'm trying to sell this book to Europe and here to the uptown publishing houses, not the comic book houses. And traditional lettering feels too comic booky.
2: Let's get back to the whole method thing. My feeling is that it's almost a perfect straight line. With the job getting more fun at each stage. Plotting is a lot of work with very little to show for it immediately. And and as you're putting it together, the job is getting more and more focused and defining itself. And you get to know it.
1: It's like a musical composition. Uh, You try to come up with a melody, and suddenly it rises up. And once you hear the melody, you can go.
2: And then execution is, is a gas. When I did Family Values, that was my first non-stop single volume. Inking was the most amazing part of it because I had 126 pages to ink, which means I laid in the flat blacks across 126 pages, and then I came in with a finer brush for the whole thing.
1: I pencil and ink each page.
2: You penciled all the way and then inked all the way? Yeah, I laid it all out. Then I penciled all of it. Then I lettered all of it. Then I laid the flat backs, blacks, and across the whole thing.
1: I can't do that because I lose my connection with the story.
2: It depends on the stories you do, too. My stuff tends to want me to go for momentum. Your stuff does move. Mine requires me
1: to be involved with each page. I'm
2: pretty involved. It's just a different kind of thing I'm after.
1: It's a different involvement, but I'm curious to know about it because it's an unusual kind of thing. Traditionally, I've always worked, and the people who worked in my shop always worked page by page.
2: It's interesting the way it works for me, because it keeps me fresher. It keeps my eye fresh at each stage. When I had those flat blacks laid down, because there's no line in it, there's just those flat areas of black. When I come to that page again, those flat blacks have dried and the page is brand new. Also, I tend to be able to work simpler with less line, because I can see what's needed and what's not. Maybe I didn't understand. You've got a 150-page book,
1: you've laid it all out for 150 pages, and you do the text first?
2: I pencil it first.
1: You pencil the whole thing, all 150 pages in penciled form, and then you go back and you start with page one again, doing the lettering all the way, and that's the second step. Yeah. And then the
2: third step is the inking of the art? Yeah, but I do that in steps, too. The way I do the inking is a little backwards because I lay in the flat areas of black before I do any line.
1: So you're inking in two stages?
2: Yeah. The best stage is the whiteout. Why? Because it's fun. I'm wiping it on my face. It's like doing a war dance or something. Also because doing some of these stages, all of a sudden I'm producing so many finished pages it's idiotic. Because I'll do the layouts in like 10 an hour and it just rolls along. I don't always do all 150 pages. Sometimes I'll do a book in large chunks, but I do work in many stages.
1: Well, what you saw in the studio is the way I do it. I've always traditionally done it page by page by page because each page is like theater. It's a scene. A book is a series of scenes, like what I first was exposed to when I saw Vaudeville as a kid. There were scenes that were called blackouts. Blackouts were little vignette scenes that were the joke, where the joke was told visually, and at the end of the joke, all the lights went out. Like a nurse walks in and drops her pants, and then all the lights will go out. Those were called blackouts. So I work from scene to scene, each uh, page for me. The pages you were looking at in that story, each one is a sequence that has a beginning and an end. A lot of the comics I see today run along endlessly. They divide movement of action between pages. I guess there's nothing wrong with it. It's another way of doing things, but it deals with a different rhythm of storytelling.
2: That's interesting. Before I flew down to do this interview, someone said your work moved more like theater and mine like film. I think it's reflected in the fact that I do put my books together like a film actor. As I'm working, I'll go, I need something here. It'll feel like the timing needs a touch. So I'll add an image, or even a page, or even two pages. I like to keep it as fluid as possible. You're working more loosely. I'm working very tight. I may make a change in my
1: scene. I'll spend some time moving the actors around. Maybe adding an extra scene, or instead of having a close-up, I'll have a long shot. But I do a page each day. You don't do what I do. I've gone through the stage of the long, sweeping thing. The, lo- the rough dummy is what you saw. That's where I did it.
2: I end up with this ridiculous, yard-thick stack of marker roughs on tracing paper. And off I'll do an image and then do an the next panel on another sheet, and then combine them with a pencil. So there are a lot of pieces to the way I work, and I'm very comfortable that way. Sometimes I just love leaving a page, half a page blank. But just because I can't, because I know that's going to make the audience feel unsettled, since there is a disturbing piece of space. And that wraps up uh, that chapter. Uh, you know, again, this book is
1: heavily illustrated with uh, not just the works of Miller uh, and Eisner, but other works to illustrate the points that they're making. Uh, so, if you want to see them, uh, it is black and white, but you know, for the purposes of study, it's perfectly fine. Uh, so that one got, but again, they did kind of touch again on the theater versus film, uh, and I wondered, like I say, what like what would we say comics? mirror film and then if so what kind of film or do comics mirror i don't know internet uh type content uh and we can definitely say some of them attempt to um it's interesting because comics you know they are their own thing they did uh in many in a you know a very general way precede film uh but they did sort of come up together and there definitely is a correlation there so But same thing with theater. So it's uh, it's very interesting to, I think, compare it that way and to look at comics that way, which is not anything uh, brand new. But when two guys like Miller and Eisner talk about it, it's like E.F. Hutton, right? You listen. Anyway, so the last chapter I'm going to read for this episode. And please uh, beg my pardon, uh, or I beg your pardon, or please pardon me because uh, the Miller voice is... Taking its toll on the old Trachea But uh, I will, this one's not too long This chapter so
2: <clears throat>
1: It's about a subject that uh, we do love Talking about on the Cosmic Treadmill We do get around to it quite often It's called Old Time Censors," And Miller starts this
2: one too He says My only good color hold story Is part of my mischievous ongoing battle With the Comics Code Back in the early 80's I visited the offices I knew a gal who worked there. I visited the offices and looked them over and realized that what the Comics Code staff looked at were black and white Xeroxes of the books. These were either approved or not. The changes were demanded based on them. They never saw the color. So I started printing blood all over my comics with red color holes, and they all they got through the comic and they all got through the comics code.
1: I've never worked under the comics code. There's some funny stories about it.
2: It's just so stupid. All these rules that were written during the McCarthy era. You know why the publishers did that? It was
1: to prevent further government action on the industry. The movies did that and got away with it, so that's why publishers created the code.
2: The movie industry had the Hayes office and then that awful rating system. How was it for you to watch the Kefauver committee
1: hearings happen? I was regarded as clean. That's why the Mike Wallace show invited me to speak. 'Cause I was doing a comic book in newspapers. And he's talking about the spirit, of course, here. Uh, Therefore I was clean. I was not part of that dirty, miserable crowd doing comic books. Cause I was doing a comic book in newspapers I was considered legitimate. That's why they invited me to debate this thing, so to literally defend it. But the end of the comic book houses Bill Gaines, EC Comics publisher, was being humiliated at these hearings. He was trapped into a stupid defense. Sure, these comics had guys putting hypodermics in people's eyes. That was the kind of stuff that was selling on the stands. But nobody at the hearings ever picked up a clean comic book and said, Hey, we also published this. Are you going to let your kids read this or this? But nobody ever did that. And that's where comic book publishers got very defensive and got together and said, We've got to do something to prevent a government intervention. The whole thing was like a Soviet show trial. Ugly.
2: Didn't they also happen to write the code sentence by sentence to shut down Bill Gaines? No. But they even prohibited the names of his books. Nothing with crime or horror in the title.
1: Uh, I don't know. I wasn't present at the writing of this thing.
2: It seems to me it was a pretty shitty job, putting the best publisher out of business.
1: Well, I don't know if he was the best publisher at the time. You call him the best publisher? I don't know if historians will agree with you. He had the
2: best line out there at the time.
1: I don't know why you'd call him the best publisher.
2: Is that because he was publishing some of the best stuff? Because EC represented as high-quality standards that I've seen in commercial comics. Well, he had good people. Well, what else makes a good publisher? All right, all right, I don't know. He published really good work. Oh, no, no, no. I,
1: I just challenged why you selected him as the best publisher. Also, I don't know where you got your evidence for. I read the code. I don't think they sat down and designed to put him out of business.
2: They listed the titles of his books and said, You can't use these titles. You can't use these genres. Everything he did is listed there as being forbidden. And that's about all that's forbidden. They listed his
1: books in the code?
2: They don't say, no crime suspense stories. They say, there will be no comics with the word crime in the title, or terror, or horror. There will be no living dead. There will be no stories that disrespect authority. It's pretty much a laundry list. That is, without outright saying, there will be no EC comics. That's pretty much what it says. To me, that's different. It's Charlie Byro who
1: was using the word crime, so it was aimed at, aimed at him too, wasn't it? I challenge why you conclude that it was designed to put EC out of business. I'm not saying I know differently, I'm just challenging your assumption. I don't know whether it's true or not. I don't think it was written to put games out of business.
2: That's my understanding, at least.
1: I think it was written to defend publishers against what they expected would be an avalanche of litigation that would put comic book business out of business. The Carlino proposal, legislation in New York that I was debating against, was a law that Governor Dewey vetoed. It would have forbidden the sale of comic books on newsstands.
2: You gotta love those old censors. They were so direct. Nowadays they're so tricky about it.
1: Historians dealing with a lot of facts made what I think are inaccurate conclusions. I suppose if you step back and look at it, from a historical perspective, it was a time of shambles. Bill Gaines was thinking he was going to go out of business, then along comes Harvey Kurtzman, who says to him, I'll tell you what we can do. We can make a humor magazine. Give me a shot at this. And Gaines said, Go ahead. Harvey made Mad Magazine, and it was done on newsprint and comic book form in the first issue, and it sold very well, so they continued. Bill Gaines had been doing a Bible comics in fo- comics form and offered to sell it to me because it wasn't selling with him. He said, Would you be interested in buying this property for me? This was Bill Gaines who, after his father died, took over his father's business after his mother ran the business for a short time. Harvey Kurtzman told me that Bill was kind of a 'er ne'er-do-well, so his mother finally got him to go into the business and straighten out. But nobody at the time really knew what they were doing, so you're quite right about that. There was a certain amount of confusion, but no more confusion than there is in any popular business the kind of business where they're selling hula hoops and toys and games. is isn't the kind of central reasoning that you have, say, between Random House and Simon & Schuster, or companies like that who regard themselves as responsible people and who are dealing with the culture at the time. There was a sense of dealing in drugs, I suppose, that comics were illegitimate merchandise.
2: It's interesting that there have been a few times that there's been an overall movement in comics, that it's always coincided with them getting in a little bit of trouble. Look at the 50s, and then look at the 60s when the Undergrounds came out. They were the cause of much consternation because they were vulgar. They were obscene. They were sold in head shops. In both cases, they were creative triumphs, precisely because they were outrageous and daring, which, I think, which is what I think comics are made to be. I think there's something outlaw about the medium that's got to be who we are, and that the worst thing we've ever done is sanitize ourselves.
1: That's an interesting point, and I want to think about it. I have a sneaking, miserable suspicion that you might be right. And I'm trying to digest that and make sure I can find a reason to prove you wrong. That's an interesting conclusion into a series of
2: facts that I think is worthy of talk. I think that's another one of those reasons why we had our own little British invasion. Mostly of writers, but also of artists. In the 80s and 90s. When these cocky Brits came sauntering in, irreverent to the material. They really shook things up. With stuff like Judge Shred, and then with the comics that eventually morphed into what DC Comics imprint Vertigo is. There was a sense of comics getting naughty again that I think turned a lot of people on. There was, of course, an immediate call for a rating system.
1: The whole period of the Kefauver Kefauver hearings was a shaking thing. There's no question about it. Working in comics at that time wasn't something your mother could tell the bridge ladies about. She was not proud of it. They put a stinking name on it. The whole thing was handled stupidly. Bill Gaines handled himself very weakly. Look, it was equally hard to fight McCarthy when he was riding high. Kefauver was a hard guy to fight.
2: The curious thing about the hearings, though, is that so much was the result of that really insipid, badly written book by Dr. Frederick Wertham Seduction of the Innocent, 1954. Have you read it? It makes today's self-help books read like Freud in comparison. It's just trash. He made conclusions that weren't
1: warranted. He was a psychiatrist, and he went around the juvenile delinquency halls where where they kept troubled kids in those days and asked each kid, What do you read? What do you do? And every kid said he read comics. Ergo, it must be those comic books that are making these guys juvenile delinquents. (laughs) There is another brilliant leap of logic. He apologized for it later. Apparently he said that it was not exactly what he meant, that he was misunderstood. Candidly, I never did read the book.
2: I've read it, and it's one of the shoddiest pieces of scholarship I've ever seen in my life.
1: It did make an impact. It was a time when everybody was frightened. A Senate hearing at that time was conducted. Anything that threatens our children brings everyone out on the streets.
2: Well, anytime anybody wants to stop anything, they say it threatens our children. That's just the button people press that always works. Of course it does, unfortunately. I had an issue of Hard Boiled getting troubled. And the complaint was by a woman who found a copy of Hard Boiled, just very graphic drawings by Jeff Darrow, in her 14-year-old son's room. And was convinced that that was why her 14-year-old boy was moody. I was 14 once. I didn't need comic books to be moody. There were strange chemical changes going on in my body that made me more moody than anything else. Also, you were learning to hate your parents at that
1: point, and you had good reason to do that. The bastards understood you. How the hell do you deal with a parent who understands you?
2: Parents never understand their offspring, but it's an insipid thing that every generation fears its offspring. Imagine what the baby boomers are going to go through when they're, when little spoiled Johnny turns 14 and stops liking them.
1: Well, you have the drug business now. Look, that goes on and on, generation after generation. The same thing, kind of thing happened in the 1800s, I'm sure, and the same thing happening now.
2: I think we're in for a big wave of it in about another eight to ten years. I think we're in for a major... What's turning our children into these large things that don't like us anymore?
1: I think that's the reason why parents are buying children's books in droves. The children's book market is the hottest market around, and it's because mother and father are both working and want to do something for little Johnny. So they buy him a 5 or $10 children's book, which they both love. They think it's great stuff. They think it's very clever. What this means to me is that parents are reaching out to do something for their child. They're feeling guilty because they're neglecting him. Because she's out working all day and he's out working all day, and half the kids around are latchkey kids.
2: To tell you how specious the arguments get that censors use, a couple of days after 9-11, I heard someone blaming it on movie violence. Something tells me those Al-Qaeda guys were a pretty determined bunch and weren't swayed by any movies they saw. And that is
1: the end of that chapter, and of course you get the free bonus uh, little dig at uh, Al-Qaeda and 9-11 commentary from Miller, which is not uh, I- uh, incorrect, but he was known to be pretty uh, vociferous or vocal about uh, 9-11 and uh, how we should react to it. He did a book, Holy Terror, which he saw as uh, you know American propaganda against Al-Qaeda, and he did sort of change the content of DK2 what the hell was that called? Dark Knight Strikes Back? Was that what that was called? You guys know what I mean. The second one. Not the not the most recent one. The uh second Dark Knight that was colored by uh was that Lynn Varley? It looked crazy. I don't know, I remember that the coloring and that was just out of control. Anyhow, that's all I'm gonna read from uh Eisner Miller uh in this episode. Uh if you thought that was interesting, I really implore you to go check the book out. It's re- it's fascinating. I-, I read it once in a while on vacation. And uh, it pretty much took up the whole vacation, just like I was just glued to this book, riveted to this conversation between these guys. It gets technical, and you guys heard a little bit of the technical talk, but uh, if you you know have read comics, if you know comics, I think you'll probably be able to handle it. And if not, maybe this is a teaching opportunity for the book to you, to teach you. More about comics and how they're structured Anyway, uh, what's funny is a lot of it in the digital world doesn't apply They don't do balloons first now That's an old school methodology to make sure you didn't uh, screw up And leave no room for the text Nowadays, with digital lettering, they can plop that thing at any time You know what I mean? So, I hope you guys enjoyed this I hope it enticed you to read more uh, from this book And maybe look more into Will Eisner and Frank Miller if you're curious, they have a large body of work, and uh, Will Eisner is definitely a tentpole figure in the history of comic books. Uh, if you want to write to me, talk to me about anything we mentioned today, uh, you know where is a good place to get books. Even you can uh, hit me up at weirdcomicshistory at gmail dot com. Uh, I'm on Twitter at Reggie Reggie. The Twitter Instagram is co- at cosmic t mill. Uh, of course, don't forget to go to Chris's website. Chris is on InfiniteEarths.com every single day. He reviews a different DC comic. And our website for the uh, show with the uh, show notes and the archives that has all the shows in order, a lot easier to navigate than Podbean. That's Weird Comics History.blogspot.com. And while you're there, if your uh, upper body is feeling chilly, click on the banner to 80stees.com, poke around. Anything is to your liking, put it in the put it in the cart, buy it up little sliver of that goes to the podcast And you help everybody and you get Some really cool t-shirts to boot We do like their stuff which is why we uh, Specifically wanted to get some kind of A partnership going with them Anyhow that's all I got for this episode Of uh, Reggie's Comic Stories I'll be back in two weeks And uh, I'm not sure what it's going to be about But until then folks I want you to keep it Storyfically Child up his home immersed on the telephone. He's gotta talk
0: to somebody who can tell him what the hell is wrong. Brain freezing up, he don't know what to do. But the people that know him know that it ain't nothing new catch five rings, then an answering machine hang up on the beam, stare up towards the ceiling, stood up to remember that he slept fully dressed, so he grabbed his keys and put a hat on his rat's nest stepped up to that big outside somebody once said today's a good day to die, but he never really was a big fan of they work, so he starts up the war by kicking sand in the dirt a friend to the stranger, a stranger to friends, he'll take a coffee and a pack of cigarettes, when you have a minute handle it, paid up, the change you keep it he's a sucker for the morning smile, and summer cleavage if you knew him better he'd ask for some time because he's looking for a reservoir to empty his mind and there's only so much he can put in the song gotta talk to somebody who can tell him what the hell is going and this house has got a lot of walls but only very few mean anything to you and this house has got a lot of walls